quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Iran written all over it. President Trump's take on the tanker attacks yesterday. The chips are down. Broadcom's forecasts send a trade war warning. And the Swiss strike back. Women across Switzerland walking out of work, calling for greater equality. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Once again, to First Move, happy Friday and a happy Friday for stock investors. Again, we are just 2% away from record highs. I'll be asking throughout the show, is that justified ultimately as I walk you through the fallout from the tensions in the Middle East and what we saw yesterday with the tanker attacks, but also some pretty concerning data from around the world too. Right now, US futures a little bit softer. We did manage half a percent gains yesterday, despite those tensions that I mentioned. The energy sector, of course, performing well. Today, though, it's all about the tech sector, especially the chip stocks. Broadcom dashing hopes of a business pickup later this year. The trade war, Huawei, you mentioned it. We've got all the details for you in a second. Everywhere you look though i'm seeing signs of broader concerns the weight of the trade war filtering in here china retail sales numbers there held up pretty well i have to say but the industrial output numbers those growing at the weakest pace in 17 years the u.s version is out in 15 minutes so we'll be all over that but for now we did see a solid retail sales numbers in line with estimates the u.s consumer remains resilient but hey Before we get too excited, compare and contrast. Morgan Stanley's U.S. Business Conditions Index has just had the biggest monthly drop on record. Fine, it's just one month, and we did see a pullback in the stock markets in May, of course, too. But now, more than 600 U.S. firms warning the U.S. government about further Chinese tariffs. We'll talk about that, too, but all sorts of signs here and warnings. Don't do more, please, the U.S. government. What's going on in the energy sector? U.S. oil prices steady today after that 4% rise that we saw yesterday after the twin tanker attacks. The U.S. firmly blaming Iran and tensions, of course, not easing there. But you have to argue here the dominant driver for prices is bumper U.S. supply and weaker demand fears. Let's break this down, get to the drivers. Iran has said the U.S. government's tanker accusations are, quote, sad and a suspicious act. While the U.S. says this footage shows the Iranian Navy removing an unexploded mine from one of those crippled tankers. Donald Trump just told Fox News that the incident had Iran written all over it. Listen in. Well, Iran did do it, and you know they did it because you saw the boat. I guess one of the mines didn't explode, and it's probably got essentially Iran written all over it. And you saw the boat at night trying to take the mine off and successfully took the mine off the boat. And that was exposed. And that was their boat. That was them. 
uh, and they didn't want the evidence left behind. I guess they don't know that we have uh, things that we can detect mm -hmm. in the dark that work very well. All right, we've got John Defterius for us in Abu Dhabi. Fred Preitgen is in Tehran for us too. Fred, I'm going to come to you first. Extraordinarily quick to accuse the Iranians here, whether it was uh, Mike Pompeo, of course, and the president this morning. Yeah. But talk us through this video as well and the evidence perhaps that that provides. Mm. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Julia. And the Iranians really aren't very happy about the fact that the U.S. was very quick to point the finger at Tehran. First of all, of course, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and then what we've just seen now, uh, President Trump essentially saying the same thing. Now, according to the U.S. military, uh, what's going on in that video, the U.S. says, is that this was taken uh, a long time after uh, that attack uh, initially took place. The U.S. said it already had a ship in the area, but that that little patrol boat from the Iranians then came up to one of those stricken tankers, uh, came up to the side and that essentially the U.S. says uh, the crew of that Iranian patrol boat then took uh, an object off the side of that tanker, which the U.S. believes may have been an, may have been an unexploded sea mine, and that was therefore trying to get rid of some of the evidence the U.S. believes against Iran. Now, the Iranians, of course, having none of that, saying that uh, these are false accusations that are being levied by the United States. There's one senior Iranian lawmaker who came out and essentially says the main suspects in all this are the U.S. intelligence services and the Israelis, obviously also not offering any sort of evidence to back that up. But you can really feel how the rhetoric certainly isn't being toned down in any way, shape or form, Julia, and in fact is indeed being heated up. On the one hand, you had President Trump and his accusations that we heard just there, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and on the other hand, you have the Iranian foreign minister, Jabhat Zarif, who just a few minutes ago, he's at, a, uh, at an economic forum uh, right now, uh, tweeted um, uh, the following, saying that unilateral U.S. actions, uh, including its economic terrorism uh, on Iran, are solely responsible for insecurity and renewed tensions in our region. So the Iranians not only saying they didn't do it, but they're the ones who are saying that the U.S. is the one that's fueling the fanning the flames in the greater Middle Eastern region. Julia? Yeah, I think the foreign minister said it was warmongering, the accusations from the United States here. I mean, I think everybody here is wondering, yeah. what now? We've seen a ratcheting up of the tensions, the, the accusations from the United States on Iran. They're accusing the U.S. of economic terrorism here. What now? Well, the big question is, um, are these two sides able to walk this back right now? Is there going to be some sort of way uh, to move forward uh, to, to, to try and essentially uh, prevent this from escalating any further? Certainly right now what the U.S. is saying is that all this is being investigated, that apparently uh, authorities are out there at those two tanker boats uh, and, and, and trying to see what exactly uh, happened there. But the U.S., of course, has now already laid the finger of blame at the Iranians. And if we look at Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's press conference yesterday, he wasn't just saying that, he was also saying the other tanker attacks uh, were also done by Iran. He was accusing the Iranians of an attack on a pipeline uh, in, in Saudi Arabia, uh, its ally, the Houthis, uh, uh, coming from, from, from Yemen. So also laying the finger of blame uh, um, at the Iranians for a lot of things that are going on in the greater Middle Eastern region and essentially accusing them of destabilizing the region. Now, of course, as you can imagine, the Iranians, for their part, are not happy about that at all. And if you looked at yesterday, when the supreme leader of Iran met with Shinzo Abe, the prime minister of Japan, he said, look, it's not even worth negotiating with someone like President Trump. He said he wouldn't even give President Trump an answer when President Trump wanted those uh, negotiators, trying to start those negotiations with the Iranians. Uh, so right now, it's going to be very, very difficult 
to try and prevent this from escalating any further, Julia. Yeah, and that is quite fascinating to me, or the reaction that we saw in the oil markets yesterday. And, and John, the lack of reaction that we're seeing today, despite what is an escalation of tensions here. And to Fred's point, too similar to our reporting, events within a month. J.D., what do you make of it? There's clearly other dominant factors here for investors that are weighing on oil prices. Well, it's extraordinary because we're in a risk-on environment, as we're talking about here. You've had the tanker attacks, uh, an attack against a pumping station for Saudi Aramco, even a airport in Saudi Arabia, and it's just barely moving the needle. But I think there's three key factors at play here uh, that are impacting prices. Uh, first and foremost, the U.S. trade sanctions, whether against China, Iran, Venezuela, Mexico, or the threats against Mexico, it's hitting demand. The International Energy Agency put out its latest report saying that daily demand growth is now down to just 1.2 million barrels a day, sharply lower than last year. U.S. production is surging, Julia. Uh, the expectation is between 2018 and by the end of this year, uh, the U.S. is going to add three and a half million barrels a day. It's like adding another UAE to the energy market, and it's a major OPEC producer. And finally, we see that the call on uh, OPEC uh, production right now is at the lowest level since 2014. It's below 30 million barrels a day. So the U.S. is rising. It's forcing OPEC to cut back. Iran, Venezuela, Libya all see the production lower. At the end of the day, the two key players in the OPEC, non-OPEC uh, stratosphere right now, uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia, are looking at the five-year moving average. Because of the uncertainty of the economy right now, inventories are growing. So this is going to yes. put pressure on them at their last, uh, next meeting in Vienna uh, not to uh, release more oil onto the market and perhaps make a deeper cut. This will be an interesting meeting because they have Iran and Venezuela at the table with U.S. sanctions hammering away at those two countries uh, with the U.S., Saudi Arabia and UAE partners here with the pressure on against Iran. Yeah, and we're talking nonstop about the back and forth between the United States and the Iranians here. But there are other countries involved, particularly in the region right now, John. What are they saying about this situation? Just keeping a little bit quiet here. Well, they don't like the idea that we could stumble into war. This is the definition here constantly. So we have this access of power against Iran. I would include Israel in the mix, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, Bahrain and, and Egypt. And this could be something that could trigger something much worse in the oil markets if it spirals out of control. You know, it's interesting because I've been in this oil market for 25 years. You go back to the, uh, the Gulf War, for example, the Iran-Iraq War, the invasion of Iraq, even the, the removal of Colonel Gaddafi. Julia, we'd see spikes 10 to 15 percent with anything uh, around the Strait of Hormuz. And right now we saw a blip going up 4.5%, losing the gains entirely, and we have to take a step back. We're in a bear market since the end of April. We've lost uh, $15 or about 20%, whether it's WTI or North Sea Brent. There's just too much oil around, and the United States is going to go past 13 million barrels a day uh, while President Trump's pressure on sanctions is slowing down global growth. That's the reality and why the market's not reacting to the pressure we have in this region. Yeah, it's a negative sentiment tranquilizer on steroids. John Deptarius, thank you so much for that. And uh, Fred, of course, over in Tehran for us too. All right, let's move on to our second driver. Of course, the Iranian situation, not the only foreign policy challenge that the United States is facing. China too, 600 firms here in the United States warning President Trump and the administration about the risks of further tariffs on the Chinese. They say more tariffs will cost U.S. jobs and harm millions of American consumers. Claire Sebastian has the story for us. And it's not just ordinary U.S. firms. I mean, these are giants, Walmart, Costco, 
urging the president to remove tariffs and not to add further, Claire. Tell us more. Yeah, this reads, Julia, like a who's who of the biggest retailers uh, in the U.S. Walmart, Target, Costco, as you say, the likes of uh, Foot Locker, Levi Strauss, Macy's as well. These are, uh, you know, some huge employers. Walmart employs one and a half million people in the U.S. It's the biggest private sector employer. And you can bet if they're threatening to raise prices, the many, many smaller companies on the list are doing it as well. There's a lot of pressure on these companies. And actually, Julia, I spoke to one of these smaller companies this week, a bike and bicycle part wholesaler called Kent International, and their president explained to me how the pressure on the company is increasing. Take a listen. We had to raise prices immediately, uh, but our customers have policies where they don't accept price increases right away. And so in the uh, time gap, which was about 75 days, we had literally one and a half to two months of time when we were paying these additional tariffs and yet we couldn't pass it on. So we suffered quite a bit of losses during that period. He says he lost about $3.5 million. He also said that ocean freight costs rose in that time because many people were rushing uh, to get their products to the U.S. before the tariff increases came in. But, Julia, so far with the $200 billion uh, in tariffs that have been hit, consumer goods have been broadly insulated. If another $300 billion uh, gets hit by tariffs, you can bet this will be a direct hit to consumer products. And that's why we see so many retailers so worried. Yeah, and they can't substitute quick enough. I mean, we're talking toy price increases of some 16%, so they were saying. Yeah, we'll see what the response is. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right. Next driver, the chipmaker Broadcom, down some 9% pre-market. They lowered their full-year outlook, warning of a demand slowdown due to the trade war impact and, of course, the direct response of the ban on Huawei, of course, and their technology. Matt Egan joins me now. Matt, a blow for the entire industry here, I think, because everyone was hoping that we'd see a bit of a pickup in the second half of this year, and Broadcom saying, not happening. That's right, Julia, not happening. It's clear that the chip makers are getting hit by a one-two punch here of the, ch- the trade war with China and a global slowdown in growth. And Broadcom cited both factors in dramatically lowering its revenue forecast for the rest of the year by about 2 billion dollars. The company also pointed to the U.S. export ban on Huawei, which accounted for nearly a billion dollars in direct revenue for Broadcom last year. Now, Broadcom CEO Hock Tan, he said that he's seeing a, um, he said that the environment is very, very nervous, and he's saying that he's seeing a very rapid and sharp contraction in orders. Now, those are pretty stark words from a major CEO, and Hock Tan did not shy away from blaming the trade war specifically. He said that it is clear that the U.S.-China trade conflict, including the Huawei export ban, is creating economic and political uncertainty. Now, that gloomy sentiment from Broadcom has further dashed those hopes of a second-half turnaround in the chip industry. We've seen AMD and Micron and Qualcomm, NVIDIA, Intel all move down pre-market Apple, which relies on Broadcom uh, chips for some of its products, is also set to open down at last check about 1%. Now, Julia, I think all of this bears watching because the chip industry is looked at as an economic bellwether. And just yesterday, billionaire investor Jeff Gunlock said he does think there's something to this idea that the trade war is contributing to a global slowdown. And he thinks there's a 40 to 45% chance of a U.S. recession within six months. 
Wow. I mean, he tends to be a bear. I guess we counter it slightly with that. But when you're talking about a company like Huawei that outsells Apple in terms of smartphones and the supply chain is so huge as far as network equipment is concerned, you kind of have to see a reaction more broadly than just initial sales like we see for chips. It's a great point. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. President Trump appears to be backtracking from his statement that he would accept foreign dirt on his opponents. In an interview with Fox News, the president said there's nothing wrong with accepting the information. However, he would turn it over to the FBI. Well, I don't think anybody would present me with anything bad because they know how much I love this country. Nobody's going to present me with anything bad. Number two, if I was, and of course you have to look at it, because if you don't look at it, you're not going to know if it's bad. How are you going to know if it's bad? But of course you'd give it to the FBI or report it to the attorney general or somebody uh, like that. But of course you'd do that. President Trump also declined to offer any new details on whether China's President Xi plans to meet with him at the upcoming G20 summit. Female lawmakers in Kenya stormed out of a parliament in protest after a male member of parliament allegedly assaulted a female lawmaker. MP Fatuma Gedi, who you see here, says Rashid Kasim punched her several times in the mouth and jaw after confronting her over a budget issue on Thursday. He's now been arrested. Right, still to come here on First Move. Oil on troubled waters as tensions rise over attacks on tankers in the Gulf of Amman. We speak to a former ambassador who says the U.S. should fight fire with fire. And breaking up is hard to do. The CEO of Google pushes back against moves to cut his company into smaller pieces. Our exclusive interview coming up. Stay with us. You're watching First Move. Welcome back to First Move. We're looking at a lower open for stock markets, all the focus on the tech sector, in particular this morning in light of what we've been talking about, chip maker Broadcom's warning and fears that the second half bounce for the chip stocks won't happen. Some perspective here is important, though, too. That semiconductor conductor index is still up some 20% year-to-date, even as it's down 12% from the April highs that we saw. We're still on top more broadly for a second straight week of gains here, but continue to watch the signs from the bond market. That 10-year Treasury yield still sitting around 2.1% on growth, broader growth concerns. That said, we have to point out that the economic numbers today were good. Industrial production numbers just out, up a better than expected to 0.4% in May, following solid retail sales numbers for May out earlier too. Let's talk all this through. Jonathan Gullab is uh, Managing Director and Chief US Equity Strategist at Credit Suisse, and he joins us now. Great to have you with us. Good morning. Talk to me about retail sales. Solid number here. The consumer holding up pretty well in the face of broader uncertainty. Yeah, but I mean, the, the key for the consumer is that jobs are abundant, the unemployment rate is low. So if you lose your job, it's very easy to get one and you're getting a raise. So the consumer's in great shape. The cyclical data, especially on the industrial side, and I know the industrial production is a little better today, but it's been sloppy really for the last year. It has. And we saw yesterday, and I mentioned it early on the show, actually, Morgan Stanley's business conditions index was splashed all over the, the financial news and websites over the last 24 hours as a warning for May. How closely should we be following things like that in the business surveys at this stage, which are showing kind of conditions the market sell-off in May, the broader trade tensions? You know, it's, it's the most important question because 
if you look at what the surveys, they tell you what businesses intend to do. And a funny thing, when they say they intend to cut back, they tend to actually do that. If you look at what they call the hard data, which is the actual production itself, it tends to be a little bit more lagging. So we're very focused on this survey data that you're talking about. And it brings it back again to trade war concerns and the level of uncertainty that we continue to have here over whether we're going to see more tariffs on China or a deal fundamentally reached. It's tough for businesses to make decisions. Well, I think there's two issues. First, if, you, if we step back and said there was nothing going on with trade whatsoever, we've seen a weakening of this industrial type activity now for quite a while. So I think that the most important thing is to separate this out as we were seeing deceleration regardless. But yes, if businesses are making a long-term decision, do I want to relocate my my factory or retool a plant or initiate a new uh, project? Very, very difficult for businesses to do that. Okay, so the Fed. Yes. It has to work out how it's going to message to the markets here. The consumer, the retail sales holding up. As you said, even if we strip out the trade war impact, the economy, the underlying economy was weakening. How do you justify potential rate cuts in the face of mixed messages here as far as the economy is concerned? The Fed's all about interest rates, and right now the yield curve is steeply inverted at the short end of the curve. Putting it in simpler terms, the short rate is just too high compared to the general level of rates for the rest of the of the market and the market is bullying the Fed to lower rates. If we didn't have a trade issue, the Fed would still have to lower rates. Why? Inflation expectations are super low. Interest rates are falling now about 120 basis points, 1.2%. Since November, the market's telling you that rates are too high. And again, is trade part of it? Yes, but it's not the only story. See, that's a fascinating point to make. So Arguably, the Fed can say that, look, we're looking at inflation at this moment. We're looking at the data. That's what we do. That's our job. There is uncertainties out there, but, you know, we need to give some easing here. The reason reason I'm smiling is that what the Fed really should be saying is, (laughs) is that that we're that they're offsides, that they tighten too much and they need to pull back. They're not going to say that they made a mistake, which is probably the, the case. What they're going to say is, oh, we're using this as an insurance policy. Right. The market's going to look right through that and realize that, in fact, they're easing because the rate is too high. I mean, I called it the Fed pirouette. We've seen one pivot. They should keep spinning, basically, if they've over the cake. How many times do they cut this you know, year? Then? Our view is that they, they cut once this year. But the market is saying, and this is what's important, the market thinks that they cut three times this year and one times. So if the fact that the market thinks that they have to cut 100 basis points, 1%, really means the market believes the Fed is offsides and needs to take action. Okay. So when I started the show today, I said, should we be 2% away from record highs more broadly in U.S. stock markets? And some of the justification I get is that rates have come down and that supports stocks. Right. You've done some analysis on this, on the relationship between lower rates here and the performance of stocks. So two questions there. Right. Okay. So there's, again, there's, there's a short term and a long term. Yeah. In the short run, when rates are falling, it's a signal that something is, is, is broken. Wrong. And so by rates going down this much in the last five months, it's really telling you that the economy is taking on more, um, you know, under more Stress. pressure than we think. <laughs> and, it, and it is stressed that way. And so we've kind of, and we've been really bullish for the last five years. This is the first time we're saying, you know what, maybe now's not the time to jump in and buy every uh, dip. Longer term, um, the real key here is the companies are responding. They're doing a great job of managing costs. They're returning dividends um, back to shareholders. 
very high. We like U.S. stocks longer term, but the near term, a little more spicy. So be careful in the near term. But if you, if you had a two or three year horizon, I'm absolutely a buyer. Would I be jumping in this morning? I'm not sure. That's my response. Jonathan, thank you so much. Obviously popular on the floor as well. So thank you so much. Great to have you here. Good to be here. And happy Friday. All right, we're counting down to the market open this morning. As you can see, Chewy actually is listing today. So no animals around, but lots of cute pictures. We'll see how that performs when it opens up later today. But plenty more to discuss too on the show. Stay with us. The market open is next. First move, I'm Juliet Chesley from the New York Stock Exchange here. That was the opening bell on Wall Street where pet food and supply company Chewy is going public today. Chewy's the internet arm of retailer PetSmart. Shares were actually priced at $22 a share, so that's above the target range. They've raised around $1 billion. It's another example of how the pet business has become a pretty big business. And there was a very cute dog on the balcony I saw there. Now, forgive the pun, but it's going to be a bit of a rough start. Yes, sorry, I didn't, re- didn't write that on Wall Street. In more ways than one, as you can see, uh, stocks uh, losing a bit of ground here. The biggest drop for the Nasdaq, some four-tenths of 1%. Weak Chinese factory data and, of course, poor results from chipmaker Broadcom, as we've been discussing, weighing on sentiment. Though there is the bright side here. The industrial production numbers that we just got from the United States came in above expectations. U.S. retail sales also, uh, those numbers coming in pretty solidly too. All right, let me walk you through our global movers. Broadcom, let's take a look at uh, how that's performing well. Down some 7.5%. The chipmaker's revenues missed expectations. It lowered its full-year revenue guidance too. They blamed the demand slowdown on the trade tensions between the United States and China and, of course, Huawei's export restrictions too. We're seeing uh, the broader sector under a bit of pressure as a result of that too, and in the European session, in fact. Facebook higher by 1.7%. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that the social network's new cryptocurrency will be called Libra, and it's getting backing from more than a dozen companies, including Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, and Uber. The digital coin will be unveiled next week, and it's set to launch next year. Blue Apron down 9.5% in the session. Ouch. The misery continues for the meal kit company. The board approved a 1 for 15 reverse stock split. That goes into effect after Friday's market close. It's now trading, as you can see, at just over $0.59. Sorry, $0.59 a share. Ouch. All right, let's move on. The controversy over attacks on oil tankers may be heating up, but as you can see, the energy market's reaction is looking a lot cooler today. Investors shrugging off the floor. It's trading, as you can see, just higher by some six-tenths of 1% for Brent, twenty-tenths of 1% higher for WTI. This is the video that's ratcheted up tensions in the Gulf of Oman. The U.S. said it shows an Iranian naval vessel coming up alongside one of the tankers, a Japanese ship, in fact, and removing an unexploded mine. U.S. officials believe Tehran was trying to get rid of the evidence. 
Our next guest wrote recently that the United States should take an eye-for-an-eye approach with the Iranian leadership. If they attack an Emirati ship, we should attack an Iranian ship. That's a quote. And that's the only language the Iranian leadership understands. Adam Morelli is a former U.S. ambassador to Bahrain. He also served as Deputy State Department spokesperson. And he joins us now from Washington. Ambassador, that's a pretty punchy response. Would you argue that if indeed Iran is responsible for this latest attack, it's a, a direct result of a lack of action from the events that we saw less than a month ago? Uh, short answer is yes and yes. I don't think there's any question, in, I don't think the question is if Iran is responsible. Uh, you know, th there, there are those who, I mean, Iran is denying it, there's no reason to believe them. Uh, there are others who think this might be a false flag operation, that's patently ridiculous. Number three, you know, everybody's looking at these latest events as if they're some one-off. But we have a pattern of behavior by Iran over the past 40 years, since 1979, when the revolution came to power, of attacking America's American and American targets and those of its allies. And there's never been a response by the United States. So my point is simply this. Iran will continue to test us and see how far it can go unless there's a brush back from us, unless they are forced to pay a price. Until now, that hasn't happened. And as a result, we have seen a pattern of aggressive actions, not only over the last several months, but over the last 40 years. People would look at what you're saying here and go, hang on a second, why is it the United States' responsibility to respond if the Iranians attack an Emirati ship or a Saudi ship? Isn't the responsibility of other nations in that region to respond to and not just leave it to the United States to take a military action here? Because that's what we're arguing. Well, I, I would qualify that. First of all, the United States is a superpower. We ought to act like one. We're the only country with the capability to, to attack uh, quickly, precisely, and effectively. No other country in the world has that. So that's point one. Point two, we have made a commitment to secure freedom of navigation in this part of the world. That is a commitment we need to stand by, or our word means nothing. Finally, number three, uh, just because Saudi Arabia and Bahrain or the United Arab Emirates aren't pulling the trigger, they are providing significant, and I mean significant, logistical, material, uh, political uh, support for U.S. forces. Uh, we operate as a coalition, and this would not be the United States going it alone. Why isn't President Trump acting here? In the article that you wrote, you said, look, he's afraid that it will cost him votes in 2020. Explain. Well, two points. Uh, you know, Trump is nothing if not consistent, right? I mean, he might seem to be a, a loose cannon and a wild card, but if you actually look carefully at what he said and what he's done, there is a, a method to the apparent madness. Number one, he's, he said he's, he wants to, he doesn't want to get America involved in any wars, and he wants to get America out of the wars that it's in. So in Afghanistan, in Syria, he has been very aggressive about pulling us out. The only reason a small number of American troops remain there is because his military advisors convinced him that it was necessary to do. He's not going to get into another, he doesn't want to get into another conflict with Iran. Now, my point is, this isn't a question of full-scale war or, or peace. You can, you can take 
limited surgical strikes against Iranian targets without going to a full-scale war. But the final point is this. Trump doesn't want the price of oil to go up because that hurts the U.S. economy. That's been a, a bedrock of his foreign policy with Saudi Arabia and others. Keep the price moderate, number one. Number two, he doesn't want to lose votes in 2020. His eye is on November 2020, and all of his decision-making is with that in mind. I think in any kind of relationship, and, and you can educate me better on this, Ambassador, you have to have an end game. You have to know what your end game is. Is it bringing yeah. Iran around the table for negotiations? Because I, I wonder how the attack for the attack and the eye for an eye achieves that. Because at this moment, we see the United States very quick to point the finger at Iran, whether that's right or wrong. I just don't see an exit. I don't see the ability for Iran here or an opportunity for them to be able to back down and negotiate, because that will look like weakness here too. Right. What's the right. end game here? Well, it depends who you ask and when. But, but the, the administration says the, the end game is very simple. It's to have Iran be a responsible, uh, responsible member of the international community to abandon its nuclear program, abandon its support for terrorism, um, uh, and, uh, and live in peace with its neighbors. All right? That's the, that's the end game. Now, they've chosen a number of tactics to achieve that. Number one, they've imposed a, a brutal sanctions regime on the government of Iran in order to deny it the resources it uses to fund terror. Second, it has opened the door to negotiations, saying our goal of negotiations is not just the nuclear program, but all your troublesome behavior. To think that Iran is going to do that is crazy, in my view, but at least we're, we're trying. Number three, and this is where I get to the use of military force. Deterrence is an important part of that strategy. Yes, you can have negotiations. Yes, you can have a path forward. But if Iran tests us, if Iran challenges us, if Iran tries to intimidate us and our allies and threaten international peace and security by bombing oil tankers in the part of the world where 30% of seaborne oil exports or oil trade goes through, then we have to act. We can't be how should I put it? We can't be afraid of taking decisive action in defense of our interests when those interests are challenged. And Iran is doing just that. And we're staying quiet and holding our, you know, holding our powder, keeping our powder dry. I don't know why. Ambassador, very quickly, what do the Iranian people want here? <laughs> well, I think, the, I think what the Iranian people want is clear. And they've been saying that in a very loud and clear voice since December of 2017. Uh, we're talking about uh, really almost 18 months. They have been in the streets, interestingly saying that they have lost faith in the Islamic Revolution, which brought the current regime to power in 1979. Never before have Iranian protesters said, We've, we don't believe in the revolution, we don't believe in the supreme leader, we don't believe in our leadership. The game is over, is, quote, what they say. Death to Rouhani, death to the dictator. So the Iranian people, you know, the, they don't see the United States as the enemy. They see their own leadership as the enemy, as sacrificing Iranian lives to defend Bashar al-Assad in Syria, for example. Spending money uh, to blow up ships in the Persian Gulf uh, or give Houthis missiles to fire at Saudi Arabia instead of providing, you know, food and medicine for the people of Iran. So the people of Iran, I think, would love, would love it if the, you know, to show the mullahs the, the back door. Uh, but 
you know, unfortunately, and this is what people need to remember, Iran is a police state of the first order. This is not a place where, this is a place where the secret services are in total control and the religious extremists are in total control. It makes the, the Iran under the Shah or mm. Germany under Stasi, East Germany under Stasi, look like a walk in the park. Yeah, it's complicated. Ambassador, always fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us Thank with you, your man. perspective. Ambassador Adam Irelli there. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, but coming up, breaking up is hard to do. Google CEO Sundar Pichai, our exclusive interview where he talks possible antitrust action and the breakup of big tech. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Google CEO Sundar Pichai says he's not surprised by the news of possible U.S. antitrust regulation and also responded to growing calls to break up big tech. He spoke exclusively to our Poppy Harlow. Listen in. There's reporting that the DOJ is, is laying the foundation for a possible antitrust investigation into Google. What's your reaction to that? You know, we've always felt as a large company, we've gone through uh, similar uh, you know, scrutiny in other countries, including in the U.S. before. You know, I think it's perfectly fine that uh, you know, as companies get, get to a big scale, there is scrutiny. Scale does offer many benefits. It's important to understand that. As a company, we now invest sometimes thinking five, ten years ahead without necessarily worrying about short-term profits. And if you, if you think about how technology leadership directly contributes to uh, leadership in, in a global economic scale, big companies are what who are investing in technologies like AI the most. So there are many benefits taking a long-term view, you know, driving long-term development, which big companies can do. But I think it's important to make sure that we are also able to create a healthy, competitive ecosystem in which other companies are able to emerge. And, you know, and that's the important question. You know, and I think scrutiny is right, and you know, we will participate constructively in these discussions. Did you expect it to come, Sundar, or were you surprised by this news? It, it, not, I mean, maybe the specific, uh, specific timing of it, but you know, we had always expected. Uh, you know, we've gone through uh, similar situations in Europe, and so it's not a surprise to us. Congress, the House Judiciary Committee, has also launched this top-to-bottom antitrust investigation into you and your competitors, the whole tech industry, all of big tech. Um, and I'm interested if that has changed any action you take within Google, meaning has it changed what you and the board are talking about? Has it made you rethink potential acquisitions for anything that may look anti-competitive? You know, for Google, the scrutiny has been there for a while now, so we've always taken that into account. Uh, there have been times when we've looked at some acquisitions and said, look, this is not uh, you know, something that may be possible. And so we've always taken that into consideration. Because of this concern? Yeah, pot yeah potentially you know, making sure there's not too much concentration in a sector or so on. So, uh, but I think for some of the other companies, maybe the scrutiny is newer. But for us, you know, we've had this for a You're while. used to it. Yeah. As you may have heard, some 2020 contenders and lawmakers think you guys and all your competitors are way too big. Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren, a Democratic 2020 contender, has even put a billboard in San Francisco talking about breaking up big tech. And she says that Google and its competitors are, in her words, they have too much power. She says you hurt small business and stifle innovation. Is she right? 
I mean, you have to look at the actual facts. And we, first of all, as a company, we do many things. Um, some areas, we are upstarts. We are challenging other established companies. And so, you know, if you look across the breadth of what we do, you, you know, you look at every area, you look at whether uh, there's other competition and whether users have choices. And above all, are we doing well because we are executing well as a company or, you know, and doing the right things and doing well or not? And so, you know, the details end up mattering. And, you know, so I also think it's important that when we look at it globally, our tech companies are going to contribute to our economic growth in an important way. And we compete against other countries, other companies. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind as well. It sounds like you think she's wrong. I, I think there needs to be a healthy debate, right. uh, you know. Any campaign has, you know, uh, you know, moments around that. But what matters to me is the healthy, thoughtful conversations around it. Your argument about other countries and America's competitiveness is similar to an argument Mark Zuckerberg has made. Basically, we're going to do it or China's going to do it. Is that essentially what you're saying? Don't, don't stifle this growth in America or it will go elsewhere? You know, it, it could, you know, when being in Silicon Valley, for example, I always think, I mean, you can't take for granted uh, that you will always be successful. I think you have to earn it. Uh, you know, now there are many countries around the world which aspire to be the next Silicon Valley, and they are supporting their companies too. So we have to balance both. This doesn't mean you don't scrutinize large companies, but you have to balance it with the fact that you want you want big, successful companies as well. Well, to that point, I mean, I know that you view Google as more than an American company. You mm -hmm. view it as a global company. So are you essentially saying, look, look at us. You've even asked for regulation for rules of the road. But if we are too squeezed or broken apart, we won't hesitate to build more elsewhere. You know, it's, it, it basically, I worry that if you regulate for the sake of regulating it, it has a lot of unintended consequences. Uh, you know, if you take a technology like artificial intelligence, you know, you know, it will have implications for our national security and, you know, and how or for, you know, other important areas of society. The Google CEO Sundar Pichai there. All right, we're going to take a break. But coming up next, they didn't get to vote until 1971. Now they're demanding equal pay and they're tired of waiting as the women of Switzerland take to the streets. We'll go live to Zurich. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show and a look at today's boardroom brief. Huawei says it will launch its foldable phone, the Mate X, in September. The phone was reportedly set to launch in June but was delayed after users faced issues with Samsung's Galaxy Fold earlier this year. Not the only reason, I imagine. NASA says it will need 20 to $30 billion over the next five years for its ambitious moon project. The legendary Apollo mission cost around $25 billion back in 1960. That would be the equivalent to $150 billion today. NASA plans to send two astronauts, including the first woman, to walk on the moon by 2024. Women across Switzerland are walking off the job today and onto the streets, demanding equal pay. They're also urging zero tolerance of violence against women. And they seem to have some support from Swiss residents. Almost 64% say they back today's strike. CNN Switzerland's Hannah Wise is live from Zurich. A pivotal moment, 28 years since 500,000 women took to the streets. Talk to me about how things have improved and why they're still protesting today. 
Okay, well, if you speak to the people on the streets, they will tell you that things really just haven't moved fast enough because, yes, on one hand, regulation has improved very much. We signed it into the Constitution, gender equality, back in 1981. Um, And even just last year, we even had pay parity law put into force for some companies. But intangible effects in real life, people are not seeing changes. If you look at women's salaries here in Switzerland, they're on average around 20% less than their male counterparts. And of course, that goes much further than just the monthly paycheck. You've got the uh, pension pot down 37% on their male counterparts because women are taking time off to look after children. And of course, there's bonuses as well. You may remember uh, UBS, Switzerland's uh, first bank, and of course, a cornerstone of the financial industry. Um, Just a few months ago, they were back in the papers because women were claiming that uh, their bonuses were cut while they were on maternity leave. And some women even resigned on that. So while there is change on the regulation side, it's just not happening fast enough uh, in real life. And I think a really good statistic to illustrate this is from the World Economic Forum last year, which is, of course, held here in Switzerland uh, on gender pay. They say that for women to earn the same as men, it would take 108 years for that to happen. So over a century for women in Switzerland to earn the same as their male counterparts. Yes, proud of them. Get out there on the streets and it's nice to see widespread support as well. Hannah, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us from CNN Switzerland there, Hannah Wise. All right, let me give you a look at what we're seeing as we get kicking or get started on this session right now. Some six-tenths of a percent lower for the Nasdaq. As you can see, the chip stocks right now front and centre. That warning from Broadcom, not only about the broader trade concerns, of course, but the fallout, the impact from the restrictions on China's Huawei feeding into these numbers. Also, the S&P off some four-tenths of 1%. We'll be back in a couple of hours' time to keep you abreast of all these stories. But for now, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Have a great weekend. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.